All right, so we are here in the sanctuary, um, continuing to look at the epistle of James. Uh, We've been moving our way through this epistle slowly, but um, uh, carefully, um, hopefully with fruit in our lives as we listen to the Word of God together and study it with one another. Um, Last, uh, let let me just start by praying as we get started this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for um, thank you for this letter, um, the letter of James that was written to your church um, by the power of your Spirit. We pray this morning that as we um, gather today, um, especially on the Lord's Day, to study your Word together as your people, that you would um, be faithful to your promises, Father. That you would bless us as we study your Word. It would be for us a means of life, a means of grace, a means by which your Son, Jesus Christ, will be revealed to us anew. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so we are continuing um, our study of the Epistle James. Last week we got about up to chapter four, and um, we uh, uh, um, Patrick, do you mind, Patrick, do you mind shutting the door over there? That'd be great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so last week we made it up into the chap- uh, chapter 4, um, and we began to talk about chapter 5, and I want to spend some time doing that this morning um, as we get started. Um, let me just remind us, and before we do, just a little bit of review. We, we covered uh, verses 11 uh, through 17 last week. Um, and James writes this in, these, in these, uh, this section. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Last week we talked about how in these verses here, um, James is really explicating and, and working out what it means to fulfill verse 10, where he gives the instruction, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the way... Uh, back from worldliness, um, from giving in to worldly uh, patterns of power um, and, 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 and prominence um, and achieving the things that you want, getting what you desire and you do not have. The way back is through humility uh, before the Lord. And in the section I just read, he demonstrates humility um, in two ways. First, humility towards our neighbor, um, the way in which we deal with them, um, not acting in judgment against them, Uh, not speaking against them as an authoritative figure who is responsible for their life or death, but rather acknowledging that the Lord, Jesus, is the judge. He is the one who will judge our neighbor, um, not us. And then humility in verses 13 through 17 toward God and toward our life, 
acknowledging our limitations, acknowledging that, um, that we uh, do not know the future. We cannot uh, plan the future in some kind of non-contingent way, a way that is not dependent always upon the will of God um, and his, his providential care for us. Um, so James here is fleshing out that humility um, that he is talking about before he introduces a new um, section in chapter 5. Any questions about that? Just kind of what we covered last week before we jump again into chapter 5. All right, let's look at chapter 5 together. Um, we began, I read this section um, last week, and um, the argument that I was making, and I'll read it again in a moment, the argument I was making there is that James here is in some sense shifting his target audience. Um, here, um, I mean, he's still speaking to the Christian readers of his epistle, um, but these words, uh, James 5, 1 through 6, are not so much directed against them, um, but against those upon whom the Lord has promised judgment, those who the Lord will judge. It's interesting, if you look at the Christian scriptures in the Old Testament, um, this is actually something you see a lot in the prophets, right? Um, think about the prophet Isaiah, for example. Um, the first 39 chapters of the prophecy of Isaiah are full of, of prophecies of judgment, um, but largely those prophecies of judgment are not against Israel. They are, there are some against Israel, but when you take up when you add it all up, there are just as many prophecies against Philistia, against Egypt, against Assyria, against all these other nations that the Lord is, is, is prophesying judgment against. Now, why would God want to, by his holy prophets, send a message to Israel about judgment that's going to come upon a different nation, another nation other than Israel? What would be the, the, the ethical um, point of that? What would be the point? of the Lord giving that judgment, prophecy of that judgment to Israel. Yes, and I, I, yeah, that's right. It's a warning for them as well. But I just want to think, let's think big picture for a moment. Why, why would, like, just think about Isaiah. Why would the Lord through Isaiah give Israel, um, the southern tribes, all of these prophecies about judgments against Egypt, not, not only against themselves, but against all these other nations also? Nathan. Yeah, that's right. Part of it is because um, there is a sense in which they are supposed to be conveyors of that warning um, to other nations. And you see that with some of the prophets, especially someone like Jonah, right, does that eventually against his will in some ways. But that's what he does. He goes and declares that judgment um, to Nineveh. Yeah. It's a reminder of God's justice, right? Yeah, it's a reminder. I mean, and when you hear the Lord is going to judge so-and-so because of what they're doing, what, what is that supposed to make you feel? Like you're supposed to be like, oh, well, what about my life, right? <laughs> like, I need to be careful because the Lord is a, a faithful judge. Yeah, there's an ethical reality there. Scott, what were you going to say? I think that's the other reason, primary reason. Yeah, it's, but it should be sobering, right, when we hear about judgment prophesied against someone else, another nation, another community. It, we should consider our own track record, our own lives, um, and, and wonder if there are ways that we need to repent. But also, it's given to Israel for comfort to say, look, and you see this again and again when you read the Old Testament prophets, right? That the Lord prophesies judgment against the nations that have oppressed them so that they will be confident that the Lord has not forgotten their suffering. He's not forgotten the ways in which they've been mistreated um, by Moab or by Egypt or by Philistia. And the Lord is actually going to make that right. He is going to judge 
those nations so that Judah doesn't feel as though somehow that's her responsibility. She has to enforce the justice of God. No, the justice of God is going to be enforced by God himself. And I would argue that this is why verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5 are here. They're here as a means of comforting the readers of James's epistle to say that, look, um, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming just as was promised explicitly by Jesus himself. Judgment is coming upon those who have made themselves your enemies and the enemies even of Christ. Um, and before, we, before I read the 5, 1 through 6, I just want to do a little bit of context. Let's look at Matthew real quick. Sometimes we forget how much Jesus himself actually talked about judgment. Um, in Matthew 23, I'm not going to read the entirety of Matthew 23, just the end of it, the beginning of 24. But if you look at the, probably the heading in your Bible, um, chapter 23 says, Seven woes to the scribes and to the Pharisees. Right? This is Jesus' prediction of judgment, extensive judgment. Um, he goes into great length, great detail. It's one of his longest teachings in the book of Matthew is this explicit judgment that is going to come upon the scribes and the Pharisees by which Jesus means the leadership of Israel in his age. Those who opposed him, who, who set themselves against him, who persecuted him, who eventually conspired against him to bring about his death. Jesus prophesies judgment against them. I'll pick it up on verse 29 at the end, or near the end of the chapter. Um, Jesus said publicly, this was not some private teaching, this was a, pro a public statement that Jesus made as a prophet of God. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in, their day, in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And Jesus is saying, woe to you. You think you're so uh, righteous and, and innocent, but that's actually evidence of your blindness, the fact that you think that, that you would not have participated in the persecution of Jeremiah, right? Or the, the persecution of Elijah or all the prophets of old. You would have done it. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. That's a really interesting statement. All the sins of Israel, all her apostasy and rebellion against the Lord, fill that up. You fill up the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Who's he, gonna, who's he talking about there? Who are the prophets and wise men and scribes that Jesus is going to send to these leaders? The apostles, right? He's going to send the apostles to them, his messengers, even after his death and resurrection. But how are they going to respond? Some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. This is going to happen. Jesus is the prophet here. He's prophesying about the future, what will come after his death and resurrection. He will send messengers, and they will be mistreated and persecuted and killed by the same leadership of Israel that killed him. And all this will happen in verse 35, so that on you, on this generation, these people Jesus is talking to, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, 
from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered from between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, just in case there's any confusion, all these things will come upon this generation. Right? Jesus isn't talking here in Matthew 23 about the end times, right? He's talking about his generation, the generation of men who stood before him. Before they would have died a natural death, they would experience the wrath and judgment of God for their sins. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew goes on, Jesus left the temple, while this was happening at the temple, and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, right? One of the other gospels says their glory, right? How glorious they were, the buildings. And remember the temple had been rebuilt uh, not too distant past and had been, uh, you know, built up, especially in the time of Herod and made beautiful again. But Jesus answered them, you see all these, do you not? all these glorious buildings of the temple complex. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Right? Jesus makes, it's, what I'm trying to show us is that Jesus in his ministry made very specific prophecies, um, not only about his death and his resurrection, as we will see again in our sermon text today, but about the judgment of Israel for their apostasy and their sin and their rebellion and their hatred against him. And I think what James is doing here is joining in and adding his weight as an apostle to that prophecy, to that judgment that would come. So with that context, listen now to verses 1 to 6 of James 5. And remember also, remember last week we talked about the, the parable of the vineyard and how the, the tenants have control of the vineyard. It's a parable Jesus tells, right? And they're, they're keeping back the fruits of the vineyard from its, from its owner, um, eventually the owner comes and destroys them. And Jesus says, this is about me because you're going to kill me. This will come upon you. <clears throat> James says, come now, you rich. I think even that identifier, you rich, points us to the fact that this is a different um, audience um, than he's been writing to. They're not called brothers. They're called you rich. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Which is interesting, right? Jesus talked about garments and about gold and silver. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Remember, where did Jesus say to lay up treasure? In heaven, right? Where, where, rust, where, where, where rust doesn't come, where things are not corroded, right? These are people who have who have rejected his teaching, who are not listening to him and laying up their treasure where he says you should lay it up. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Jesus, on more than one occasion, compares his ministry and those who he'd sent out to fulfill his ministry as laborers, who will reap 
a harvest, right? Think about John 4. Think about places in Matthew, right? And Jesus says, pray that more laborers will be sent out to, to harvest the fields. The, the fields are white, right? This is a metaphor that Jesus himself used. And if we, if we think that that's the metaphor James is using here, as, as I do, it's pretty clear, right? G Jesus or James is prophesying against those who are preventing the, the, the harvesters to do their jobs, to reap the harvest that the Lord has sent them out to do. And who is doing that in this generation? It is the Jewish apostate people who are opposing uh, the church at every turn. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, right, by deceit, by lying, are crying out against you, right? The blood of Stephen is crying out. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Even that, that Lord of hosts language is interesting. That's an Old Testament phrase, right? It's all over the Psalms, the Lord of armies. It's always used in reference to when the Lord is going to come and defend and protect his people from their enemies. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Think about those woes that Jesus speaks in Matthew 23. So much of them are about the ways in which the leaders of Israel have used their power for their own ends, for their own selfishness. Um, to accumulate wealth and power and prominence and privilege. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And here's the really damning part. I think the part that really connects this with the audience that James, uh, the context in which James is writing. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Who is that about? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. We also could say that it's Stephen, I think. Right? Remember the first part of Acts? That he is, they've condemned and murdered the righteous person who doesn't resist them. You know, Stephen walks in the way of Jesus. But yeah, primarily this is about Jesus. This is about the fact that they heard all the prophecies that Jesus gave about judgment that would come upon them, and they still killed him anyway. They still murdered the innocent and righteous person who did not resist them. They still put him to death. They still, even when he told them the parable about how the, the tenants of the vineyard would say to one another, here is the son, let us kill him, right? They still did it, right? I mean, that's the fascinating thing about all this is that even though the Pharisees recognized in that parable that Jesus was talking about them, they still fulfilled what he said they would do. And now James is issuing this reaffirmation of the prophecy of Jesus, um, both as a means certainly to, um, if there's any, any, um, uh, sin or any, uh, you know, this kind of worldliness, this kind of imitation of the Jewish um, leaders um, that the Christian readers are tempted towards to warn them away from that, but also to grant them comfort that the word that Jesus spoken has spoke will indeed come to pass. Um, the argument basically is Jesus was a prophet who was vindicated by his prophecy of his death and his resurrection, and now he will also be vindicated by the fulfillment of his prophecy of judgment upon his enemies within the space of a generation. And of course, this prophecy would come true, we know from the historical record around the year 70 AD. Um, the Jews would rise in rebellion one last time against the Roman Empire, and, and they would be destroyed um, by Roman legions. Um, the Lord would not show up, the Lord of hosts would not protect them, right? but rather the Roman armies would surround Jerusalem and break down its doors and burn the temple and destroy any and, and that, is, that is when Old Testament Israel religion ended, right? It was wiped out on that day. The priesthood was ended, um, the temple was ended, the sacrificial system 
um, all of the things that were essential to the way in which God had set up um, the Old Testament life of the people of God were destroyed, were cut off. Um, and, and Judaism today is a fundamentally different religion. It's not the same thing. It's not some continuation of you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's a different thing. Um, and it's different because the Lord in his providence intentionally cut off that option. You know, there was no longer an option for Christians to say, oh, we should go back to the temple. We should go back to sacrifices. We should go back to the Aaronic priesthood uh, because those things were all destroyed by the Lord in judgment against Israel because of her rebellion, not only in the generation against Jesus, of Jesus, but in her, gener- her rebellion for millennia at that point, right? Her apostasy. Okay. Does that make sense? You guys have questions about that argument? Yes, sir. Yeah, it fits, and that's, and that's an Old Testament motif as well, right? We're going to see that in these next verses. The day of the Lord is coming. The judge is standing at the door, and that is something that is that they are to anticipate and look forward to when they will be vindicated. Um, yeah, Eric. Well, I really do think that one of the major things that is different is um, uh, the way in which um, the priesthood has ended. Um, I think that's a really important difference. Um, no one is going around in Israel claiming that they are the sons of Aaron and they are you know, the Levitical tribe that has this ownership of uh, the priesthood and the sacrifices. Um, so I think that would be one argument, um, uh, a really important one. Um, it's right, you're right that there were ex- exiles that took place, um, uh, you know, earlier, of course, with Babylon and the destruction of the temple in that time. But even in that time, what you see is you see the Lord preserving a remnant of his people. Um, and you have the prophets speaking about that and prophesying that. And you just don't have the same, um, that doesn't exist um, in terms of Second Temple Judaism. You know, there, there was no... Uh, movement of like, okay, now we're going to go into exile and the Lord is going to preserve us and bring us back. Um, any, anything, anything like that has, has been added in um, after. Um, so that's, I mean, I think those, those are all fundamental things I think that are really important. Um, there's, there's no structure. And, and, and Eric, I think the other thing to remember is that the exile only lasted, what, about 70 years um, when they went off to Babylon, Right. Um, and so they were able to maintain a sort of a, a coherence in terms of their religious system, even with the temple being taken away. Um, but, but, you know, now we're looking at a period of almost 2,000 years. Um, and that, that's a fundamentally different thing. Um, so those, those are some of the things I would point to. 
Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the rejection of the Messiah, of course. I was, I was thought you were talking just more like what are some objective things we can point to. Oh, yeah, of course, the reason why the Lord um, ended <laughs> Old Testament religion is because um, they, uh, well, because he brought the Messiah who fulfilled all of those things, so they're no longer necessary or, or even appropriate or helpful um, for spirituality, right? Um, uh, it's a mercy to us, actually, as Christians, because, I mean, there is still some temptation within the Church of Jesus Christ to, you know, let's do the Old Testament festivals and feasts and think about, you know, these kinds of things because they give us spiritual value. Um, but it, it's much less than it would be if, you know, somehow, you know, Old Testament Israelite religion were on some kind of parallel track with Christianity. Um, but that's, you know, I think that's a bi- it's a mercy to us. Um, and that's ultimately why um, the Lord destroyed um, Israel in that way. Any other questions? Todd? Right, there's some connections there. Yeah, and, and certainly Revelation. I mean, I think Revelation is a is a obviously a complicated work, and certainly some of it has to do with the end of the world and the coming of the last day and all those things. But certainly, I think most of Revelation has to do with um, events that are f- fulfilled in 70 A.D. Those kinds of things. Yeah, there can actually be some connections there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, it is an interesting metaphor, right? Yeah, it's a really horrific metaphor if you play it out in your mind, right? Yeah, it's it's a really sobering, right? He's saying you fatten yourself for the day of slaughter. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, you, you see this in the in Acts um, that the the Jewish leadership in these very cities have lots of influence, um, can go to the Roman leaders and expect that they will respond. You know, um, uh, you see this um, even earlier in the book of James when he talks about um, you know the rich man and the poor man come into your midst and you want to give deference to the rich man because the rich man has power. And then he says, "Are not the rich the ones who oppress you?" The ones who drag you into court are not the rich, the ones who dishonor the honorable name by which you've been called. Like he's talking about, absolutely, and we know this just historically, that, that you know, just often those who were, who were Jewish and who had been scattered in different parts of the Roman Empire um, had prominence, had power, were successful merchants, were successful politicians. And yeah, they absolutely, you know, the Christians at this time were on the margins very much of society. And you know that if you read the book of Acts, that you, that's what you see, right? Um, Paul goes in and he's trying to, you know, he's meeting people outside the city, you know, he's going in and then eventually word gets out to the Jews who have power and they stir up the city against uh, the Christians, against the preaching of Paul and push him out. Um, and the reason they can do that is because they have power and influence. Absolutely. All right, one more and then we'll continue. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. How do I speak to it? 
I think it's an interesting political event um, that has no spiritual significance. That's what I would say. I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Yeah, so what I would say just in terms of as American, I mean, as American Christians or just as Christians in general. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in terms of American foreign policy, um, there may be, um, you know, political reasons for us to have an uh, alliance with Israel. Um, I'm not really qualified to judge that very well. Um, But those would be the only reasons why America should have some kind of allegiance with Israel, in my opinion. There's no spiritual reason for us to uh, defend the democracy of Israel um, more so than any other nation on earth. Um, and, and so that's, that's how I would think about in terms of just political uh, perspective. Um, I don't think there's any, any you know, spiritual imperative that we have to sort of side with those people who are potentially you know, biological descendants of Abraham and Sarah. Um, I would say that in terms of, you know, just spiritually, I don't think there's any, I mean, I think if you, you know, if you read the history books, you can, you can think a lot about a lot of things in terms of colonialism and, and guilt in the West for the Holocaust and ways in which all of that sort of led to the formation of the nation state of Israel. Um, and I think those are interesting sort of historical realities, but there's no, I don't judge the formation of the nation state of Israel to be any kind of, <coughs> excuse me, particular, um, you know, thing that God is doing in the world in a special way in which He's not also working in providence generally. And of course, the nation state of Israel happened because God ordained it to be so, but I don't think He did so in some special act of providence, um, like He does. Like our Westminster Confession says that the Lord acts in a special way in his providence towards the church, towards maintaining the church and caring for and protecting her. I think that that's not what happened with the nation state of Israel. It's just a thing that happened. You know, like I mean, we see democracies forming in the last, you know, 70 years in different parts of the world as well. And I think that's, it's just a thing. Does that help at all? I mean, that's my perspective. Um, And I understand that people disagree on this. This is a topic that folks have different perspectives on. Um, but I, I really do think that it's, it is, um, I think it's an important thing for us to wrestle with. Um, and, and this is part of what I'm arguing um, here is that, is that the, those practicing Jews who live in Jerusalem or live in, in Israel, they are not some sort of continuation of Old Testament religion. There's some other false religion that is predicated upon, really, if you read the stories and the history, opposition to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Like, that's, that's the thing that holds it together. Um, and I, I think that that's, we need to be very careful as Christians as seeing people like that as anything other than uh, targets for our evangelism, um, people who need to receive and submit to the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ, and who have become, in many ways, particularly hardened against it, unfortunately. Um, yes, David.
Yeah, it's a prominent view, and I and I, there are reasons for that. Most of them are rooted in dispensationalism, and you know um, uh, that comes out of the 19th century, and um, particular ways of reading uh, Revelation and other parts of the Old Testament, understanding Israel's relationship to the church today. Yeah, and I would say that that the Reformed tradition generally, um, and certainly our church particularly, doesn't go that way, the way that we think about um, the Jewish nation. Yes. That's right. If there's if the if if modern day religious Jews um, who are truly fervent in their religion are continuation of anything, as John put it, they're a continuation of um, the Pharisees of the day. And 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 again, if you, I mean, I encourage you to read the literature. This is this is what you know. The modern day Judaism is not focused on generally upon. Um, truly studying the scriptures, the canonical scriptures. They are study. They are focused on studying the rabbinical commentary uh, on the scriptures, which comes out of the Pharisaical tradition, and and all of this comes about historically because of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Um, now the sacrifices are gone. Now all those things are unavailable. So they have to basically invent a new religion, and they do so by those people who escaped death at Jerusalem from the Roman Empire but still opposed Jesus as the Messiah and, and, and were apostate in that way, in that particular way, that particularly heinous way, I would say. Um, and that's right, and that modern-day Judaism is, it's just, it's just nothing like, you know, what Abraham and um, the prophets were teaching. Yes, sir. Yeah, we, we can have political discussions about that for sure. Right. Yes. It's also important to recognize that Israel is one of the, I mean, just since we're talking about Israel, one of the only political democracies in the world that bans Christian evangelism, right? Um, just, you know, it's, it's not something that is looked upon or accepted um, to go and proselytize um, practicing Jews who are Orthodox. You know, that is something that's not permitted. Yes, ma'am.
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah, we there is that that common agreement on a canonical scripture, um, a portion of it at least, and there are avenues there certainly for evangelism that exist that are more challenging in other contexts. That's certainly true. All right. I'm going to take one more question on this, and we're going to move move on. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I'm, I think we're going to have to put that on the side, and I'm happy to come back to it with you afterward. That's a complicated thing, yes, but I, I hear what you're saying. Let's, uh, let's move on to, I just want to read quickly um, this next section and show you how it connects um, to what we said before. Um, verse 7, notice that James shifts his direct um, address here. Right? He says, be patient, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? Whatever comes before, right? Because of what I've just said, because of verses 1 through 6, because of this prophecy against the rich, and I think it does only really make sense unless, you know, like if, if, he, if he were intending the Christian readers to self-identify with verses 1 through 6, what would he say? He would say, repent, therefore, right? Turn away from your sin. That's not what he says. He says, be patient, therefore. Be patient because of what I've just prophesied. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He doesn't tell them that they need to repent, that they need to turn away from withholding the, the harvester's wages from the Lord of the harvest. He says, be patient, be steadfast, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And that coming there is certainly has implications for the coming of the Lord that we await on the last day. But the primary coming of the Lord he's talking about here is the promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ in 70 AD when he, not literally physically in the flesh, but by his spirit, by his intentional providential direction, would direct the armies of Rome to destroy Jerusalem and the temple of Israel as a direct fulfillment of his word, his promise. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he uses our agricultural metaphor, right? Where could he have ever learned that? Um, I think it's from Jesus. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, right? Wait upon the Lord. Even though you can, this thing of the farming metaphor, right? Farmers have to put the seed in the ground and then nothing comes. And it looks like, and this is what the Christians are experiencing right now. Like they've trusted in Jesus and it looks like nothing is coming. Right. They're getting slaughtered. All the things that are being talked about here that are being prophesied against their enemies are happening to them. They're being killed. They're being um, fattened like a, like a calf for the day of slaughter, it seems. But James is saying, be patient. Don't trust what your eyes see. Trust the word of Christ. Trust his prophecy. Trust the prophecy I'm giving you as well. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Right? It is almost here. It is coming. And if, friends, if you read the New Testament epistles in this, in this lens, you really see how frequently this exhortation that the judgment of the Lord is coming and that you must be patient and wait for it is. And it is not usually talking primarily about the last day, right? The second coming. It is usually talking about, in that context, um, the coming of Jesus and in providential history to destroy um, Israel. And you see this and destroy the enemies of those to whom the apostles were writing. You see this in Thessalonians. You see it in Second Peter. Um, you see it all over the place in the New Testament if you really start to look and think about it. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Right? We talked about that, about how all Christian ethic requires an affirmation of the final judgment, that Jesus will hold all, everyone to account, not only his enemies, but also even those who have put their faith and trust in him. All of us will give an account. The judge is standing at the door. Right? He shifts here from telling them to be patient to giving them moral and ethical exhortation in terms of their treatment of one another. Because the judge that is coming for Israel is also going to require an account from them on the last day. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And here he's connecting, right? Jesus does this. Jesus connects his own ministries to the faithful prophets who were killed, right? And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, this is the line that you're in. You're being treated like Elijah, you're being treated like Jeremiah, right? This is actually good news. This is how the faithful prophets were always treated by apostate Israel. This is actually an affirmation that you're on the right side, the fact that you're getting killed right now. I mean, it's ironic, but that's what he's saying. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Remember, that connects back to the beginning of James's epistle. This really is um, his primary statement, um, the blessing of steadfastness. When you are steadfast, you will be blessed um, because you will be made mature when you show patience in this way, when you stand firm in the midst of an anxious and troubled world. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There he um, exhorts them to be like Job, right? And, and Job is used there as an Old Testament figure, um, someone who suffered great ruin and yet, um, um, again and again, said, I'm innocent of any um, sin that would have caused this or made this happen. And, and he's, in, he's encouraging these Christian readers to be like Job, to trust in the Lord's vindication. And ultimately, of course, that's what happens at the end of Job. Job is vindicated by the Lord, and his fortunes are restored um, even twofold, um, or fourfold, rather. Um, and his friends are actually the ones who are judged, who are persecuting him. All right, any final questions before we wrap up? I just wanted to show how that section relates before we get into the final section of James next week and talk about things like anointing with oil, stuff like that. Great question. So Wendy's asking, how do we read this contextually? If, if I'm arguing for the strong first century context, pre-70 AD, so what does it mean for us, basically, is what you're saying? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Steadfast. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it works in that this, what happened in 70 AD 
not only is an affirmation of Jesus' prophecy and his identity as the Messiah, it also points us toward the importance of the last coming. That, that all of us, that, that we ultimately are waiting as Christians for that judgment, for that vindication. Um, and that because we trust that it's coming, that, we, that all flesh will be judged and that those who have identified themselves with Jesus Messiah um, will be vindicated, that it gives us um, the confidence, the power, um, the ability to have faith and to be patient and to wait, um, to not feel like we have to enforce the justice of God um, in our lives, but we can trust his ultimate vindication. That's what I would say. Does that answer what you're asking or are you asking something different? Yeah, well, I, th- I don't, certainly don't think that James is urging passivity. I think that he is urging um, investment in the things that matter and that will last. And, he, you know, he talks about that in terms of our treatment of the weak and the vulnerable, um, receiving with meekness the implanted word. All these kinds of things are the actions that we're called to do and enter into. Um, and certainly, I mean, I talked about this several weeks ago. I don't think James is here arguing against, you know, there are things politically happening in our nation or our society that we will oppose and we should oppose. But I think what James is really touching on here is where is our ultimate trust? Where, where is our ultimate confidence? Um, you know, that ultimately we're not trusting in our ability to achieve the things that we desire but do not have through worldly means. We have to be patient and wait for the Lord to enforce them. I'm not sure if I'm answering what you're asking though. Well, so Wendy's asking, how do we as Christians do what James is saying here, resist evil in the world? Um, and, and I think there's no, I think the simple answer is there's no simple answer to that. Um, there's no um, one size fits all. It's going to depend on your contacts and your giftings and what the Lord has entrusted to you. Um, there are certain principles by which every Christian is called to resist evil. Um, but I think it's going to look different for different people. Um, yeah, and, and I, th- I, think, I think it is a contextual thing. And I think some of this gets back to where James is talking about judgment. You know, much of his don't judge one another is directed towards the Christian community, right? And, and people are going to respond to evil in different ways. And I think we all have to be careful to not assume that, you know, because I'm called to resist evil in this way, if this person isn't responding the same way, they're acquiescing, right? They're, they're, uh, they're compromising with the world. I don't think that's necessarily true or even our responsibility to know. Exactly. Yeah, Kim, and then we'll wrap up.
absolutely. Right. Yeah, certainly James is, is or exhorting folks for a life that is where their obedience is to Jesus is uh, manifest to others, and you know it's 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 one of the main emphasis of his his letter, right? Is to show your faith by your works and to to be obedient. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's stand and pray. I know there are a lot of questions, but we have to break, prepare for worship. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you love us through it. Thank you for. Um, um, just your mercy to us in it, Lord. Father, I know that even today we've wrestled with some hard things, and I pray that you would give each of us a measure of wisdom and humility and charity as we reflect upon them together, even in our minds, as we prepare now for worship. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.